All right, everyone, I hope that time of praise and, and worship was edifying for you and, of course, glorifying to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to continue our study of the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 13. And we'll be continuing our study of Exodus this morning. Again, I know there are competing stories out in the world if you watch the news at all. One news station says this, another stays this, and um, we're going through a very interesting time where history is, be is being revised, it's being revisited, it's being criticized and revised, and we're seeing uh, statues torn down in the United States and elsewhere in the United Kingdom, and then people are arguing over events that happened decades ago, even hundreds of years ago. So we live in a fascinating time where people are arguing about history and what the authoritative rendering of that history ought to be. And so some people might think, well, the Bible, that's not important news. What's really important is, you know, CNN, Fox News, whatever it might be, that's real news. But what I want to say as Christians, as followers of Jesus, I think we have to insist that as important as all those things are in the world, the story that is before us in the Bible is the most important story in all of human history. I think that's how we have to look at the news, that every other story that we're told should be filtered through this story, the story of what God has done to save the world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so for me personally, I know while detractors of Christianity mock the Bible, they mock church, and well, that's not real power, that's not how you get things done. Again, I beg to differ. I believe this story, this history, has the power to change lives. And it has more power in some ways than any other kind of news known to man, because this is the power to change a human heart. The best that the news can do in revising history books is maybe you change people's mind and you gain some earthly political power. But what none of those things can actually do is change a human heart. If people are sinful, if they are evil, then there's nothing you can do to stop that. You can vote in laws that restrain that, um, that seek to punish that and maybe promote some good behavior, but you can't change a human heart. Only the gospel of God can do that. And so, friends, I believe that as Christians, this is the most important hour of our week. We need to be gathering together, uniting together as one. I taught on the unity of the church last week, and if you missed that, um, I called the message A House United. I talked about how important it is in this moment for Christians to be united together as one. Again, I know there's hundreds, if not thousands of denominations, and they've split over various reasons uh, from, you know, relatively significant secondary doctrines to very, very minor methodological differences. But I believe now is the time, now is the hour for all of God's people to unite together as one. And we need to remember our history. We need to remember our story. We need to remember who we are. Because if we don't, like ancient Israel, we will also forget the Lord our God and we will become like the world we are meant to be used by God to save. And so join with me now. We'll read Exodus 13 together aloud. I'll pray 
and we'll see what God has for us this morning. So this is Exodus 13. God has just begun leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. The tenth and final plague has come. Pharaoh is letting them go. They're journeying out of Egypt, but they're not quite out. They've been at a border town called Sukkot, and they are about to exit the land of Egypt, and God has instructions for them. And so let us read now God's word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Aviv. And it shall be, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And it shall be, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem it with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in the time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you, so that they journeyed from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness." And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go out by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we just come before you now and we just ask for the grace and mercy and truth of Jesus Christ to penetrate our hearts. Lord, if there is any sin in us, if there is any wickedness, if there is any stubbornness or unwillingness to hear your word, Lord, we just pray that the Holy Spirit would soften our hearts so that our hearts would be fertile ground this morning, that the seed of the word of God can go into, be planted, and grow roots and bear fruit unto eternal life. Lord, we need you desperately in this hour. We need you to deliver us. We need you to give us strength. We need you to lead us and guide us into all truth. You need us to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so I just pray for a blessing over this time of study. Lord, bless the meditation of my heart and the words of my lips. Let them be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer, bless my brothers and sisters now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, it's popular in some circles to say Christians don't need the Old Testament. After all, it says the word old in front of it. It's old. It's like an old pair of socks. You don't need them anymore. You can throw it out. And they would point to the fact that, yes, Jesus has come. Jesus has died for us on the cross. That really does change things. That means we don't have to keep all kinds of different ceremonial and dietary laws that you see in the Old Testament. And therefore, on that basis, because things genuinely are different in Jesus, some people have made the wrong conclusion that therefore we can unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. But friends, that is a great and grave mistake. We cannot actually understand the New Testament properly without understanding the Old. And this applies to some of the most basic language and meaning of the Christian life. This question that is often asked in, in church circles, are you saved? I want you to be saved. Let's pray for your family member to be saved. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be saved? What, what does living a saved life look like? What do we do when being saved sometimes doesn't feel as good or as easy as being lost? What do we do about that? How do we answer those questions? And it turns out that the Old Testament provides the background through which you and I are able to answer these fundamental New Testament Christian answers. And so at the end of chapter 13, as we work our way through it, I just want to revisit those questions. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to live a saved life? And what do we do or what should we think when living a saved life seems actually more difficult than living a life that is lost. So we'll revisit those questions at the end, as I believe we'll see some fruit of our study this morning in Exodus 13. So let's take a verse-by-verse -verse approach to this chapter, beginning in verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So we've already seen some interruptions in the action, in, in the narrative of the story of the Exodus. We know that 
for the beginning of the book of Exodus, it was moving forward rather quickly, and we're seeing all kinds of action. We're seeing God speak. We're seeing God act. We're seeing Moses speak. We're seeing Moses act. We're seeing Pharaoh speak, and Pharaoh act, and the children of Israel. And so all kind of action, and then all of a sudden, I pointed out to you that when we arrive at the 10th and final plague, all of a sudden, things slow down. And God begins really unpacking the meaning of the 10th plague, what it is going to mean for Israel, not just what it meant at the time, but what it will mean for every subsequent generation that will come. And here we have the idea again, that as Israel is journeying out, so they've left where they were in the land of Goshen, they've been moving out. They're still in Egypt, but they're, they're in Sukkot, which we believe to be a border town. And so they're about to go. But here again, we see a break in the action. And God is repeating over and over various rituals and practices that Israel must be sure to do when they get out of Egypt. Now, we've already seen that the Feast of Passover and of Unleavened Bread were already communicated to Israel. God unpacked those things in detail. And here in chapter 13, we see the idea resumed again. So, for example, in verses 3 through 10, we revisit this Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's already talked about it. He's going to talk about it again, uh, partly to remind them and reinforce the significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and also to expand on it. But here in verses 1 and 2, we're given a hint of a new emphasis of, of teaching and practice that God wants to give Israel. And it's the importance of the firstborn. What is the meaning of the firstborn? Why is Israel going to give their firstborn? And again, ultimately, what does that contribute to Christian theology? So, Moses begins to speak of this here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. It's going to break abruptly, and we're going to go into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And again, I say ab abruptly, but really, all these things are tied together. So he's going to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 3 through 10. Then when we get back to verse 11, he's going to resume the topic now of the firstborn. And so we'll get back into that. And then finally, we see God once again leading Israel out of Egypt. So again, it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, consecrate to me. Again, the word consecrate is Kadesh, and it means to make holy. So you are going to make holy. You are going to set apart for my use. It will not just be for your use. Again, this is important for Christian teaching because many Christians think that if I'm doing something that's not a sin, well, then that's a holy act. Well, not necessarily. Just because you're free to do something doesn't mean that that is something that God has specifically called you to do and that marks you out as being a Christian. Again, there's many areas of liberty. There's many things that Israel was allowed to do. Um, it wasn't a sin to do it, but neither did it set them apart. So this idea of holiness is specific acts and beliefs which set Israel apart as belonging to God. That's something very important. And so as Christians, we do some of the same kinds of things. I know it's become popular for many people to say, oh, you don't need to go to church. Church is not important. 
Reading your Bible is not important. Praying is not important. Supporting the church is not important. Doing evangelism is not important. Baptism is not important. The Lord's Supper is not important. And they'll even try to use biblical doctrine to justify such erroneous beliefs. They'll say, well, Paul taught in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved, not of works. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So that means I don't have to do anything. Well, that's actually not true. And as I'm going to show you this morning, that's actually based upon a faulty presupposition that a solid study of the Old Testament should remedy. So you will make holy, set apart for purposes of identifying who you are and who I am. You will make holy to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So again, we'll talk a little bit more about the firstborn when we return to verse 11, but just note the idea behind this. The whole point is to mark you out as belonging to God. It's not just to be moral, broadly speaking, although that's that's good and we're called to do that as well. But even non-believers can do moral things, friends. But typically a non-believer is not going to go to church, read their Bibles, pray, support the church, submit to baptism, the Lord's Supper, and evangelize the lost. Okay, so do you see what I'm saying? There's broad moral behavior that we're called to do as Christians, yet that does not necessarily mark us out, for non-believers can do the same things. So we are talking about unique practices that identify you and I as Christians, as belonging to the Lord God. So let's look at the Feast on Unleavened Bread again. Again, we've already covered it, but Moses is going to expand on it a little bit more. He says in verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Now again, for those of you that missed it or perhaps you forgot, it's only been a few weeks, um, but what was the point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread? The whole point, the point was to commemorate the night that Israel fled in haste. The idea was that they, when the time came for them to be delivered, it was going to happen so fast, they weren't even going to have time to prepare bread the way it normally would. That, that's the idea. It was in haste. So that's what it's communicating. Now, again, the first Passover, the first uh, celebration of unleavened bread happened in a single night. But we already saw that Moses, through the instruction of the Lord, is expanding the practice from one night to seven. So it's going to become an instruction. It is going to be a teaching tool that ingrains in Israel the significance and meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let me pause here. Again, notice that word remember. I've said this over and over, but that word remember, zachar, zachar means remember, remember, remember. And let me say this, friends, because I think it's very, very pertinent to the moment you find ourselves in, culturally speaking, and that is this. How we remember the past is as important as the past events themselves. Let me say that again. How we remember the past is as important as the past events themselves. Think about this from a Christian perspective. 
Now, let, let's say, and I, I thought through this statement if, a few times, I could have uh, maybe uh, gone with it a, a little bit of a different way, could have even overexpressed it a little bit, but let me just give you an example. Um, if anyone were to push back on that statement and they were to say, Pastor Mike, I disagree with that. When you say how we remember the past is as important as the past, I, I don't think so. I think the past event itself is more important. Okay, yes and no. And that's why I said it's as important, not more. Um, but let's think about this. Jesus dying on the cross, that is not a present event. That's a past event, right? Okay, so Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's a past event. Now, that's significant. And if it didn't happen, that makes a world of difference. Absolutely. But think about this. Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, and I assert that is an absolute fact of history. However, what if you don't remember it? What impact does that have on your present life? If you do not remember that Jesus died for you, how will that shape your life? What difference does the cross make? If you do not remember it, or perhaps what if you remember it differently? For example, we have various religions that remember the cross, but they remember it differently. We know that Islam tells the story uh, of various religions, tell the story of Jesus, but then uh, his, his, you know, his spirit left him or someone else replaced him on the cross or he swooned. He didn't really die. That makes a world of difference. But think about it. None of that changes whatever happened, but it does change how we remember it and how we remember the past is extremely significant. So one of the things we're seeing God do through the instruction Moses is giving Israel is he's like, look, I saved you out of Egypt. That's a fact. But when you leave and you go and you enter into this promised land and life is good and you're drinking wine on your ivory couch and your paneled houses and life is good and, and you're forgetting about the temple and it's completely destroyed and falling apart. But all weekend you just spend time working on your house, but the house of the Lord is in disarray. What difference then does it make that God led Israel out of Egypt? Let me say that again. How we remember the past is as important as the past events themselves. Think about where we're at right now in Western culture. I'm thinking particularly of the United States, but I've seen news in the UK as well, so we can include um, at least them. One of the battles, the key battles, and this is fascinating, right now we're battling over history. We're not battling so much over what happened, because whatever happened, it's over, right? None of us is going to change the past. It's over. Nothing can be done to change the past. But right now we are seeing a war, an absolute culture war over how we remember the past. And think about this. If how we remember the past is not that important, then why is everybody tearing down statues? Why are people going to marching on Washington, D.C. and pulling down statues of Robert E. Lee? And I've, I've heard some people want to tear down the Lincoln Memorial and the, uh, the Washington Memorial. And then um, I know in London they had to board up the statue of Winston Churchill because people spray-painted racist on it and they want to tear it down. So again, at this point, I'm not making this a platform to give you my opinion on all these things. And by the way, I think it's actually a very complex situation. But let me just point this out. We are in an absolute battle over history. Not the events, but the telling of the past. 
So make no mistake, God, the God of the Bible, always knew that how we remember things changes the present world. How you remember what God has done for you, how you remember who you were, how you remember what God has done, how you look back on your marriage, how you look back on your upbringing, how you look back on this country, how you look back on the Christian church will radically shape the present. Again, I stopped short of saying how we remember is more important than the past events. I, I don't want to say that because obviously if certain things didn't happen, Christ's cross in particular, then, then me remembering that he did if he didn't, well, that, that doesn't help me. It might affect my present life, but that will not help me in the life to come. So I put them alongside each other. So what we are seeing is God preparing Israel to remember who they are. Because one of the things that happens in this world is that we forget who we are. We allow other things to come in and question our identity. We allow people or culture to say, that's not really who you are. You know, you tell yourself this story, but let me give you an alternate telling of that story. This is something that we encounter as individuals, we are encountering as a nation, and it's going to happen over and over and over again. So it's so important for God's people that they remember centrally the stories of what God has done for them. And it's important we remember them the way God told them. That is why the Bible is so important. It is the only inspired, infallible, inerrant source about history. Think about this. Now, I watch the news, and, and I'm a history guy. I love history. I like reading history books. I like reading articles on history. I like watching shows on history. But none of those are infallible. You know, and I know people will kind of, well, I'm, I'm conservative. I'll, I'll pick a conservative telling of history, and I'm, I'm a, you know, a, a liberal, so I'll pick a liberal telling of history. But let me just say, regardless of who you pick, that's not the Bible. Even someone who means well can be wrong. They can falsely tell you about history. They can be wrong. And so I think it's so important that you and I remember the most important story of the world is the one told in this book. This is the story that should shape this story. The story that of us in the United States or in the Western world or indeed anywhere. That story is not the meta narrative. It is not the big story. People feel like that right now. You and I are probably tempted to feel that way. We're tempted to believe that what I see on the news is a bigger and more important story than this. But I have to remember it over and over again. Part of what God is doing is reminding Israel and he's reminding us, no, the most important story is not the one you're seeing in the news. It's the one I have already told you. And it is inspired and it is infallible. So it is the story through which you and I are to interpret other stories. It is the story which solidifies our identity as people. Who I really am is not what people in the news tell me or a university professor or anybody else. Who I am is who God tells me I am. Say that with me. Who I am is who God tells me I am. One more time. Who I am is who God tells me I am. And a million voices contradicting God will not make them right. 
So friends, you and I need to be utterly and completely grounded in the word of God. And so that phrase, remember Israel, remember who you are, is important for who they are for the present and the future. Of course, we know that the future for Israel in the Old Testament is by and large not a good one. You could even say, if you wanted to sum up, and obviously all kinds of details and differences and, you know, the the pre-monarchic period with the judges and then the monarchy and then the divided kingdom, and and then you can go through the list of kings and, and how different they might be or how similar. But let me just sum it all up for you. The rest of the Old Testament is Israel coming to terms with who they are. And for the most part, by and large, they did not remember. They forgot who they were, who the prophets were, the Nevi'im, who the prophets were that God sent to Israel, were people called to remind Israel of who they were. That was essentially it. Israel, you have forgotten who you are. You're enjoying the blessings that God gave you with none of the responsibility. You love that you're saved from Egypt. You hate that you were saved to worship the Lord. And that is what you see through most, again, exceptions, little gracious momentary exceptions. But by and large, that is the story. And it's where the Old Testament ends. Before the 400 years of silence, as we call them, no inspired word from God until John the Baptist appears on the scene to prepare the way of the Lord. And so remember this day, verse 3, in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Um, Now, it's kind of important because sometimes in Hebrew, there can be one word. um, So the root word is avad. Avad means to work and it can mean slavery. Um, Sometimes one single Hebrew word used in a narrative can actually be translated with multiple English words. and, And it doesn't mean it's horribly wrong, but what you can miss is a pattern. Okay, so when it says that out of the house of bondage, Avadim, I believe it is, and then if you go down later, it says that you will keep, in verse 10, you shall keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And it repeats that same word two more times. Now, why am I saying that to you? For this reason. What is being communicated And it's communicated very clearly here grammatically. Israel is being saved from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt to slavery to God. Now, again, I know that that word slavery has such a negative connotation so that many times people don't like like to use that word with respect to God. But that's actually effectively what Israel is called to do. God is using the same word. So really what the issue is, it's not the slavery per se, it's who you're serving. Who wouldn't want to be a slave to the Lord God who delivers you from Egypt and gives you freedom and dies for your sins and forgives all your sins and and makes you a people and promises to raise you up again from the dead and defeat the powers of sin, death, and hell to rule and reign God forever? As a matter of fact, friends, if you remember in the New Testament, I would say this is the background to the often repeated language of the Apostle Paul, who begins his epistles with Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. This is important because Israel often behaved this way, and I would observe many Christians do as well. 
They thank God they were saved from the house of bondage and they act like they were not saved to slavery or servanthood to the Lord. And that is a big mistake. What is being communicated is, Israel, you are not set free from Egypt to just do whatever in the world you want. Christians, many people believe, maybe some of us believe, we were saved to do whatever in the world we want. And then we just do a little thing here and there. I'll go to church once in a while. I'll I'll tolerate some annoying little commands in the Bible here and there. But my life is my own. I get to do what I want. That's what freedom really is. Freedom is autonomy from serving anyone. Friends, that is a heresy. That is a heretical definition of the word freedom. The word freedom in the Bible is not autonomy. The word freedom in the Bible means free to serve, to be a bondservant of the Lord. Free from the bondage in Egypt so that they were free to serve, to be a bondservant of the Lord. So again, this idea of we're saved so we can do whatever in the world we want to do is wrong. It is wrong for the church. It is wrong for people to believe. I just raise my hand at a junior altar call, say the sinner's prayer, and then I can live like hell hoping I'll get heaven. That's not how it works. If you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just about what you're getting out of, friends, although that's included. It's about what you're saved to. You belong to the Lord. That's what you're signing up for. And I'm not going to try to sneak in some fine print today. For those of you that are on the fence about Jesus, you're not Christians. And I know friends and family might just want to nudge in and not tell you all what you're going to be getting into. But I want to tell you up front, I think Jesus did. You know, I don't think Jesus tried to sneak people into the kingdom. I don't think he tried to deceive people. I don't think he gave them long contracts with fine print at the bottom that they're not possibly going to read. I think Jesus was very, very clear. Unless you forsake your mother, father, sister, brothers, wife, children, yes, your own life also, you're not worthy of me. We are to leave all to belong to the Lord. And the same was true of Israel. So transferred from slavery to sin and death to the kingdom of God and righteousness. We are bondservants, slaves, if you would, of Yahweh, of the Lord. And so we must give ourselves wholly and completely to him. And he says in verse 4, On this day you are going out in the month of Aviv, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service once again this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you. Nor shall leaven be seen in your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. So again, God is giving these instructions on religious practices for the purpose of teaching identity to subsequent generations. And so parents... Parents have a vital role in the Christian life. We are to be living a life that is questionable. Now, I know sometimes, again, when we say questionable, that's questionable. We take it in a negative sense, but I'm using it in a positive sense. 
If you live a life to which nobody asks a question, I'd say something is wrong. I think we are meant to live different enough that people ask a question. They say, what hope do you have? Why do you go to church when you go? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you support the church with your money? I know that's a ridiculous idea to anyone outside the faith. I see people mocking it in the news all the time uh, to evangelize. Lots of people mock it and even say it's bad. I've actually heard people say evangelism is actually just uh, imperialism. It's imp political imperialism and colonialism, and evangelism is, is just a secret tool to capture people politically and take their money. I, I've heard all kinds of charges. So I think you and I are meant to live a life that people will question. And so already here, again, the idea of passing on the faith to the next generations. Parents, if you're having a hard time getting your kids to read the Bible, if they complain when you get them up to go to church in the morning and they're like, oh, I don't want to go, do we have to go, or what's this, or what's that, or why do we take communion, why do we take the bread and the cup, why, why do we go get baptized, why do we have our, you know, we have shirts on and clothes on and we're getting dunked in the water, that's good, these are all teaching tools that, that are more meant to be asked and we respond, teaching them about the faith. So it says in verse 9, It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord had brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Again, verse 9 and several others are where the old practice, and again, from uh, what I understand, there's no evidence of this taking place prior to the first century of, um, of the common era, as they call it in scholarship. Um, but this is where the tephilim and the phylacteries come from. Uh, again, you may or may not know those words, but perhaps you've seen um, there's Orthodox Jews and other groups that will wrap around a leather strap and then they'll actually have a box um, with scriptures written inside and it goes around the forehead. And that comes from these verses. Um, that people took these literally, and again, some people debate that, again, no, it's saying it'll be like that, and it actually just says it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and keeping it, that will function as this sign to you. But nevertheless, that's where the idea comes from, the idea of ownership, that you belong to God, that it, that it marks you out wherever you go. Again, friends, by the way, this is the parallel to the book of Revelation. I believe it's chapter 13, where it talks about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. And notice, notice where the marks go. On the hand and on the forehead. Well, is that just some random thing? No, that is directly pointing to this. It's communicating to us that whatever the mark of the beast is, and people, you know, some people thought it was a tattoo <clears throat> before the microchipping age. Other people think it's a microchip or whatever. But let me tell you this, and I'm confident of this from Scripture. It will not be something apart from worship. In other words, this is where it comes from. Satan is mimicking this idea. He wants people to bind his name on their hand and on their forehead. So it is an act of worship, which means for people that are, and again, I haven't had anyone in our church say this, but I've seen people 
I'm on social media scared. Oh my gosh, what if I accidentally take the mark? What if I fall asleep and, and then the, you know, they come in and they inject the chip? Will I go to hell and burn forever? No. It is an act of worship. It's a sign of allegiance and identification. It will go hand in hand that you that a person who receives the mark of the beast is a person who worships him as God. They are surrendering to him. Whereas somebody who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ cannot accept allegiance to anyone ultimately. We submit to the, the authorities that are, but we bow our knees to no one but King Jesus. So let's begin with verse 11 now. And here's where <clears throat> Moses resumes what he began talking about in verses 1 and 2. The laws regarding the firstborn. Something that as of yet has not been unpacked. It says in verse 11, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. Now, I'll stop here and we'll talk about the basic meaning of this, and then we'll get into a little bit of the details of how it was practiced and what the significance of those practices are. Again, so this recalls the Passover event. This recalls the fact that the firstborn of the Egyptians all died. And I pointed this out. This was very interesting. You might have thought that since the Egyptians, and particularly Pharaoh, were, were so morally depraved um, that the angel of death would have only killed the Egyptians. But that's actually not the picture we get. The picture we get is even the Israelites would also have been killed by the angel of death had they not marked the doorposts of their house and the lentils with the blood of the lamb. That was very important. <clears throat> so again, the idea of substitutionary atonement, the idea that no one is righteous, no, not one. If certain people were just morally, inherently good, then you would have expected, well, then the, the Egyptians get killed. And Israel, they, they don't have to stand inside their house with the blood of the lamb. They can just walk around and go do their normal thing. Or they can stay in their house, but no, no blood of the lamb. That's not the picture we're given. It's the idea that everyone kind of has judgment coming. Again, does it unpack this the way the New Testament does? No, it doesn't. But can we see when we read the New Testament and we study it and we reflect back, do we see the seedbed of Christian theology here in the Old Testament? Absolutely. So we see that what Paul says in Romans was true back then. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Egyptians did not have the atoning blood of the lamb, so their firstborn died. The Israelites were not inherently morally good as though they did not inherit the sin of Adam. Of course they did. That's what the whole program of the seed of the woman and God's act of election in history was to bring about the Messiah who would save everyone who had fallen in Adam, which is everybody. So we see the blood of the lamb applied over Israel. So this is an act of remembrance. Once again, just like the Passover lamb, just like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Israel will perpetually offer their firstborn to the Lord. And again, you'll remember if when you start asking you know, critical questions, well, well, why the firstborn and why this and why that? Again, it's symbolic. The firstborn was symbolic of the family. 
The, the firstborn is the one who carries on the family name. If the father dies, it is the son who carries on the family legacy. So the firstborn is actually symbolic of the family. The same thing is true of what we call first fruits. You're not giving everything to God, like literally on the altar. You're not taking everything you have to possibly live on and, and burning it all on the altar. No, but you are giving the first and the best. You're giving the first and the best of what you have, and you're offering it, and it's symbolic of giving everything. That's actually what it is. The idea of, of both the Old Testament and the New is not that Christians give a little bit of their lives to God. No, it's you give God everything. But all God calls you to do practically is give some things symbolically in recognition that all things belong to him. And so that's part of the significance of why the firstborn. And notice that this includes the animals as well. And there is a distinction between animals and humans. So we'll talk about that in a moment. So it says in verse 13, but... Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Okay, so a donkey, Why? Why? what is this about breaking its neck? And if you don't want to break its neck, why do you have to trade? It is an unclean animal. That's the point. So worship is not is never, in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, worship is never what I want. That's why you and I as Christians, we need to be careful about worship. Um, certainly, uh, we, we want to be excellent in worship. Uh, we want to do a good job. Uh, certainly, we want to we listen to each other. But at the same time, we need to be careful. Worship is not us. It's not for us. Worship is for God. We need to be very, very careful of that because many times nowadays in American religious consumerism, people just kind of, the music is for them. It's a performance for them. And they sort of take that in and critique it as a consumer. But ultimately, that is not what worship is for. Worship is for God. It is to be glorifying to God. So we have to make sure that that's what we're asking. When you and I come to church, we should not come with the attitude of, what can I get? That is common. That's what many people, maybe most, I'll just say many, many people when they come to a church, they're thinking, what can I get? Did I like this? Did I like that? What will you give me? What will you provide for me? And no thought at all of how can I give myself? How can I give of my substance and myself and my life for the worship of God and the betterment of his people? That's the attitude of worship. Worship is not one of self of consumption, but of sacrifice. It is not one of consumption, but of sacrifice. So we see that we are offering to God. And that means we offer to God what he prescribes, what he wants. If we give God our leftovers, that's not what he wants. If we're saying, hey, we're going to do church in an anti-biblical way. We don't think you should have to read the Bible anymore. We don't think you should have to sing. We don't think you should have to do baptism. or And we don't think you should have pastors. And we don't think you should have deacons or anything. We're just getting rid of it all. Well, I'm sorry, friend. Worship is not what you want. It is what God wants. And so we are told here that donkeys are unclean animals. And therefore, you cannot offer them to the Lord. And so they had two options. The Israelites had two options. A, you can trade it for a lamb, and a lamb is an acceptable sacrifice. And the second thing you can do, this is not really an option, but it's an option. If you refuse to do that, then you have to break its neck. 
and now it's no good for you. Again, donkeys were a beast of burden, very valuable domesticated animal in ancient Israel and elsewhere in the Canaanite region. So really, it's the first option. It's no, you're not going to probably just break your donkey's neck. Rather, you'll acknowledge, no, I'll redeem it by offering a lamb in its place. Once again, what you're seeing is the idea of substitutionary atonement. The idea of one switching places with another. What was to be true of the one, the donkey must die, is being switched for the lamb, and the lamb dies in its place. So again, I know sometimes people are very careful to say, don't read the New Testament back on the old. Well, Jesus and the apostles did, for starters. But let's just say, again, at this point, though they don't fully understand the significance of Jesus, the Messiah, and who he is, and what he will be, and what he will be doing, and yet all the preparation and all the seeds for understanding the doctrine of Christ in the New Testament are provided here. And the key matter when we consider Christ and what he has done for us in our relationship to him is the matter of substitutionary atonement. The idea that in God's economy, one is able from the beginning by law prescribed that one innocent unblemished one may take the place of another. And I like the picture here. The unclean is exchanged for the clean. And so again, preparation for understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So it says in verse 14, So it shall be when your son asks you in this time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all males that opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So again here, God makes a distinction between animals and humans. Uh, unlike some Canaanite neighbors who did offer their sons as sacrifices, we know Israel was forbidden to do that. So when you first read, oh, they were going to offer their sons, and you go, oh, are they going to burn them? Well, here it makes clear, no, there's an exception. When it comes to the animals, yes, they would be offered as a sacrifice. When it comes to the firstborn son, no, they will be redeemed. And so a redemption price, once again, atonement, redemption, the buying back, the son would be paid for, atoned for, the money would be paid in exchange for the firstborn son. And verse 16, you see the repetition of the same thing that was said earlier in verse 9. Once again, it, and what is it? What just went before, the sacrificing of the firstborn. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And again, notice what this is meant to do. This is meant to promote complete faith and trust in Yahweh, in the Lord. So in other words, there's a connection, friends, between what we do, our actions, our, including our what we might call ceremonial practices. Again, the baptism and, and Lord's Supper and going to church. We all, there, there is some connection between us actually doing it, saying things, doing things with our bodies. When we actually walk through that, there is a connection between that and being reinforced in our identity and strengthening our faith. They go together. 
Now, I know that one of the reasons why many modern American Christians don't take these things seriously, they just say, oh, I have private faith and own, but I don't do any of that, you know, Bible stuff, church stuff. That's not what it's about. It's just about a private personal relationship with Jesus without me doing anything outwardly related to it. Now, I think part of this is a reaction against superstition in the Middle Ages, we know that in the Middle Ages, that's where Thomas Aquinas, the you know, great Catholic theologian, came up with the doctrine called transubstantiation. And again, it was the idea that the bread in the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper actually literally becomes the body and blood of the Lord. So we know that some people, and again, there's a host of other things. That's one chief example of how things be, were, were sort of superstitious and, and people missed the, the faith element and, and they were focused on the externals. But I think we've gone the other way. We've committed the opposite error. We've, we're so focused on the internals. Oh, well, it's just about my faith. Yet we neglect the external mechanisms that God has provided for us as embodied creatures who actually live in this world through which we act and we increase our faith. Our faith is actually increased as we obey, as we gather, as we hear, as we speak, as we give an offer to the Lord, as we do these things. Our identity as people of God and the strength of our faith gets stronger. So for those of you that you wonder, why is my faith so weak? Why am I, you know, again, I would just say, give yourself to the Lord. And when, I'm, when I say that, I mean it practically. Commit to going to church. Commit to attending services online. Commit to celebrating the Lord's Supper. Commit to regular patterns of prayer. Commit to reading the Bible. Commit to giving financially to the house of the Lord. Commit to evangelizing and telling the lost about the great things that God has done for you in Christ. As you actually do those things, you become stronger in your faith. There is a connection between the two. And so it reminds us that it is by the Lord's hand of strength, not our own. Notice that. This is another New Testament doctrine in an Old Testament narrative. That salvation does not come by our work, but solely by the work of God. Salvation was complete deliverance. We pointed this out even in the ten plagues. Although I think it's obvious the first nine were from God, and yet we observe that in the first nine, Moses is always involved. You know, striking something with his rod or doing waving his hand or something like that. In the tenth plague, we saw there's nothing. It is actually God in the presence of God, the presence of the angel of the Lord going through Egypt that actually does it. So we're reminded salvation is not something we do. We believe in a God who saves. We believe in a God who saves those who cannot save themselves. We believe in a God who sets slaves free. That is the God that we believe in. So we are reinforced as we do these things in our identity as the people of God. Verse 17, Then it came to pass... When Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps when the people change their minds and they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So again, um, notice that if you look on a map, the route Israel actually took to get to the promised land was definitely not the fastest route. 
but we're actually given a glimpse here of why that is. Now, we know that later Israel, of course, would rebel even in the wilderness, and so they um, made the journey much, much longer than it ever needed to be. And yet, we'll notice here, God chose a longer route, and it tells us why. It says in verse at the end of verse 17, God said, lest perhaps when people change their minds and they see war and they return to Egypt. So in other words, it wasn't that God was unable. Notice that. The text does not say God was unable to deliver them through the, the land of the Philistines or through the route where the Egyptians would have had some of their garrisons, that God was unable. Notice the long route was not due to God's inability but due to the fear of the people. And one of the things I want to share with you, saints, is sometimes God takes us on the long route. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes you and I have to take the long way around. And sometimes we feel like it's God judging us, like he's mad at you or you've sinned or something like that. So God's taking you on this super long route, whereas it looked like, hey, I thought it was just A to B. Now I'm doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G just to get back up where I was going. Um, but remember, there's a purpose. If God doesn't take us on the shortest route, then the purpose of the journey of the longer one is always to build our faith. Notice that. It's because they were afraid. That is why God did not take them on the shorter route. There's probably at least two different routes they could have gone. Both were shorter, but they were afraid. God knew them. Notice that. God knows where we are. He knows where we are. He knows where our hearts are at. He knows if we trust him. He knows if we're afraid. And sometimes he can't take us the way he would like to take us because we have not learned to trust him yet. So friends, again, be encouraged. If you're taking the long way around in this season of life or seasons of again, it's not because God hates you or, or even necessarily that he's judging you, but he wants to build your faith. The longer journey is necessary in order the Lord to increase your faith. And you will need that strengthened faith where you are going. Verse 19, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Now, again, I and others see this as, as implicit as implying the doctrine of the resurrection. Why is it that Joseph, who's long been dead, and his bones there, probably he was mummified, um, but his bones are there. Why is it he wants to be carried to the promised land? And again, it's there's this idea, again, is the doctrine of the resurrection as clear and as explicit in the old as it is in the new? No, certainly not. But people have actually said that it's not there. But of course, Jesus said that it was there. And he actually chose a, a verse I wouldn't have thought of when the Sadducees were mocking Jesus about the resurrection. Jesus points back to the Pentateuch, to the Torah, to the books of the Bible that they accepted because uh, the Sadducees didn't accept the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus said, it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not a past tense, it's a present tense. Therefore, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. We know that Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 19, says Abraham, who is a forerunner of Joseph, believed in the resurrection. Read, read Hebrews eleven nineteen. It says, when Abraham offered his son Isaac, he did so reasoning that if his son died, God was able to bring him back to life. So the New Testament, which is inspired, it's not just me, some 21st century, you know, Gentile guy reading it in. No, the New Testament did. Jesus and the apostles did. They said Abraham believed 
in the resurrection. And so I think if we take that understanding, there was this implicit idea, though hinted at, again, certainly not as clear as the new, but it's there, that the bones of Joseph, Joseph believing one day he would be resurrected with his people. Verse 20, so they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go out by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So again, this, this going out and this going before is the language used of military leaders. The general goes out before his army. And with almost no exceptions, that is always a, a human figure. And here we have, it is God himself. This is what sets Israel apart. It is not in all these other details. It is simply in this, that it is God, the Lord himself, that is leading Israel out. And that's what makes them who they are. You know, the, the idea that we can just be, we can be the special people of God um, because of our morals and our values, but then detach ourselves from actually following the Lord is actually to lose our identity as a people. So the Lord going before and leading his people and the Holy Spirit does the same thing in our lives. The Spirit goes before us. The Spirit leads us. The Spirit speaks to us and says, this is the way. Walk in it. So you and I today too, we are to be led by the Spirit. It is not always just where I want to go and what I want to do. Many times in life, that's exactly what I don't get to do. God leads me where he wants me to go. Sometimes where I want to go, he does not want me to go. Sometimes I don't want to go. That's exactly where the Lord wants me to go. So for you and I, it's not about kicking and screaming and saying, God, I want this. I want this. I want to go here. I want to go there. No, friends, if we are Christians, if we are people of faith, then we simply say, Lord, where do you want us to go? Wherever you are, wherever your presence is, wherever the pillar of cloud and fire goes, that is where I want to be. And Moses even says, Lord, if you do not go before us, then I don't want to go. I will simply, if the cloud stays here, I'm staying here. If the cloud moves on, I'm moving on. We follow the presence of the Lord. That is part of what it means to be God's pilgrim people. We follow him through this present world. And so let me just revisit those three questions I asked at the beginning. What does it mean to be saved? What does living a saved life look like? And what should we think when living a saved life sometimes feels like it's not much better than being lost? What does it mean to be saved? We learn from Exodus 13, it means two things, two basic things. It means being saved from something, and it means being saved for something. You are saved from, and you are saved for. You cannot have one without the other. Both go together. Just like we saw Israel saved from Egypt and for service, slavery, bond servanthood to the Lord, it is the same for you and I. You are sane from sin and death and worldliness, not to do whatever in the world you want to do now, 
but you are now saved for righteousness. You are saved for godliness. You are saved for the Lord. You belong to him in body, mind, and spirit. You owe God everything. So this sort of modern Christian idea that Christianity is just about getting out of Egypt, but then we can just do, go wherever we want, whatever we do, is not Christianity. I would actually say that's true slavery. True slavery is when you don't serve the Lord. Serving the Lord and making yourself a bondservant of Christ is where freedom is found. This is what Jesus was teaching when he said, He who seeks to save his life, he who seeks to free his life, is the one who loses it. It's the one who's really enslaved. But the one who loses their life, the one who makes themselves a slave to the Lord, is the one who finds it and is the one who is most free. A beautiful passage in the New Testament that uses this language of slavery and sums it up as the picture of the Christian life is Romans 6, 15 through 23. Maybe just jot the reference down. Romans 6, 15 through 23. Here it is. The Apostle Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, do you see that? Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became, listen friends, slaves of righteousness. There's no idea of being autonomous in the Christian life. Freedom is serving the Lord. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, there it is. This is Paul drawing off a Christological interpretation of Exodus 13. And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Again, that as the Lord saves us from sin and death and, and the worldliness, again, we are to give our lives completely to the Lord. And once again, another way in which the, the imagery, the rituals and practices of Exodus 13 is brought home to the New Testament happens in Romans 12, this idea of a sacrifice Whereas before they were told to offer their firstborn, now in Christ, who is our firstborn, we are to offer ourselves, our entire lives as sacrifices. Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect 
will of God. You see, friends, we belong completely in body, mind, and spirit to the Lord Jesus. We are to engage in lives that people can look at and they can ask questions and say, you are you belong to God, that they can see that you belong to Jesus. You are a person of faith. You are a disciple of Jesus. That is who you are. That is your core identity. Even when the world retells your story over and over and says, this is who you are, that is who you are. The Christian, through engaging in the acts of obedience that God has told us in his word, our identity is being solidified so that we can handle the questioning and the revisioning of history and of our own biographies by anyone outside. We allow the Lord to tell the story of history that matters most. The greatest acts in the past are the stories of what God has done, and it is his telling of them that are most important. And lastly, just like Israel, we will find times where being saved is difficult. It is not an easy life. We must not tell people, oh, if you come to Jesus, you'll have an easy life. Israel didn't have an easy life when they got out of Egypt. In fact, it got so hard, they wanted to go back because it was familiar and it was predictable and they knew what they had there. Following God is a great adventure. You never quite know where in the world, literally, the Lord might lead you to go. But we know that wherever the Lord leads, he is leading us in order to strengthen our faith. And so even if we're in a long season right now, we've taken the long route in life. Maybe some of you have not come to the Lord yet and you're getting advanced in years. Some of you are like, man, I spent most of my life as a non-believer and I just now became a Christian. Friends, join the club. Because in one way or another, God often has to take all of us, like Israel, on a long route in order to increase our faith. And so friends, in this moment, when the history of, of the United States and the Western world is being revised and questioned and quite literally torn down, we must be reminded of who we are. We are made in the image of God. We are being renewed into the image of Christ, God's one and only firstborn son over all creation. It is by believing in him, placing our trust in him as our Passover land, the firstborn that was offered on the cross in our place. Just as ancient Israel knew and understood that somehow in the economy of God, that an unrighteous person, an unclean person could be switched out could be switched out for someone who was clean, a clean and acceptable sacrifice, that a redemption price could be paid and we could be set free. Friends, this all pointed and prepared the way to Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. He is the firstborn, the one and only son of God who takes away the sins of the world. And who we are is children of God beloved of God. That is who we are. And so friends, it's my prayer this morning that we will repent of anything in our lives, whether in thought or in action, that is not fitting the kingdom of God. It does not demonstrate our slavery, our, our service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, friends, I believe there's new acts of mercy and generosity and, and labor and sacrifice that God wants us to enter into in this next season. Because we want to be reinforced in who we are. Remember, the giving and the serving and everything else, it's for us. It forms our identity. God uses it to reinforce who we are. And I believe we need that now more than ever. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we thank you and praise you for your holy word. Lord, we thank you for your servant Moses. Lord, we thank you for his life. We thank you for what a great man he was, even though he himself was imperfect and sinned and doubted and fell short of the glory of God. But we thank you that the prophet that Moses spoke of that would be greater than himself has come. The Lord Jesus, who leads us now out, not just out of bondage to Egypt, but out of bondage to what Egypt really represents, bondage to sin and death. And this Egypt is not just out there somewhere in the culture. It is inside. It is in sinful hearts. It is in the heart of those who have not been redeemed, those who have not received the Lord. They are enslaved, even if they tell themselves they're free. And they have the world shouting that this is what being free is. If they have not been set free by the Son of God, then they are slaves in Egypt still. Lord, I just pray for your people now, Lord, if we're going through a long wilderness route and we're wondering why you couldn't have taken us on the short route and, and we're scared and we're growing discouraged, Lord, remind us who we are. Remind us who you are. You are the Lord who saves with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Just as you delivered Israel, so you can deliver your people today. I believe, Lord, right now at this monumental moment, in our history, in our culture, Lord, where things around us are crumbling and, and it almost, it, there's, there are certainly wars, culture wars, and, who, and even acts of violence and who knows what will be in the future. But Lord, I pray that you would remind us of who you are, your awesome, mighty power. Lord, I pray you would begin saving people from all across the political and social spectrum, just saving people every out of, out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, men and women and children for your name, that they would belong to you, that they would be witnesses to you, that the things that you have done, your mighty saving acts, and your telling of it in the Bible is the stories we need to hear most. And so, Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would move on my brothers and sisters, bless the households, bless the families, bless the children, bless their grandchildren, let us take our faith more seriously now than ever. I know some of us will be tempted to forsake the faith, forsake the gathering together, Lord, because we're looking at all these other things and we feel like we need to get ready for those things. But Lord, this is preparation for the battle. The battle is spiritual, as Paul said in Ephesians 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and hosts and wickedness in the heavenly places. Lord, if we seriously think what's going on in the world is a problem, we need to take the battle seriously, and the battle is in the Spirit. So enable your people to see this battle for what it really is and help us to fight with the spiritual weapons we have been given. I ask for a blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen.